The following is a conversation with Matt Bartlett, head of Web3 and NFT community at Van Eck, a global investment manager focused largely on ETFs and mutual funds with many billions of dollars in assets under management. This is the Atria podcast where we bring light and ventilation to the crypto Web3 space. I'm Joe McKeating. Please like and review the Atria podcast wherever you consume podcasts as it helps us rank higher and reach a broader audience. Matt, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure. I know we're probably going to talk quite a bit about NFTs today, which is why I wore my Board Ape Yacht Club shirt. Um, cool. But let's begin by talking, you know, a lot of the people we talk to on this podcast are, let's call it in the natively crypto world. So crypto companies, um, you bring an interesting perspective being in more of a traditional finance setting, but also doing some really innovative things when it comes to a regulated financial company operating in this space. So would you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this NFT project at Van Eck? Yeah, sure. And, and maybe I'll just start with Van Eck just for uh, uh, a couple bars. So we were founded in 55. We're a U.S.-based US uh, asset manager providing forward-looking, intelligently designed products that we think and believe provide value-added exposures to, in to industries like crypto, right, and other asset classes. And it started way back um, with a, a first investment in international equities, and then sort of with the threat of rising inflation in the mid to late 60s, we converted that particular strategy into a concentrated gold mining equity position. And so this sort of initial innovation, I guess, shaped the future of the firm's growth and investment philosophy, which brings us to where we are today, talking about NFTs and Web3, right? And so. For the past eight years, I've been working as the head of internal sales at Van Eck. And in parallel, you know, outside of my day job, I was investing in NFTs. So 2017, I took part in the uh, Decentraland Land Mint. That was my first NFT and it was really exciting back then. Uh, of course, Crypto Winter took hold and, and, you know, it became a little disenchanted with, with what was happening there. Uh, but back late last year, 2021, I got really uh, involved with a project called Altered State Machine, which is tied to non-fungible labs. They're trying to democratize artificial intelligence in the form of NFTs. And at the same time, Van Eck was trying to launch uh, an NFT themselves. So that, that the sort of the genesis of the NFT project started back in November. And based on, call it my experience and passion for the space, I worked with that team as sort of the special advisor, right? Like, sort of helping them go in the right direction uh, and using sort of my firsthand experience. So fast forward to May, we launched the NFT. Um, we had a thousand, we have a thousand really high quality assets using Unreal Engine 5. We had 50,000 signups. Part of that was because it's free, right? And that, so that's a little unique. Um, and, and then subsequently, because of that experience, because of the success and maybe some of my historical responsibilities, I was promoted to head of Web3 and NFT community. Really amazing what you can do with Unreal Engine, by the way. And I think I think you hit on a really important point there, which is there is no experience like firsthand experience. So uh, there are people who listen to this who are in the space. There are people who are curious about it, but not in it yet. And would you agree that there's nothing like setting up a wallet, getting into it yourself, experiencing a firsthand uh, any explanation that you read just is not going to give you the same insights into crypto or Web3 than participating. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. I, I think when we, when maybe you and I first spoke, um, I talked about the importance of education and sort of the reasons behind why we even launched the NFT, which, you know, we are trying to, uh, get out in front of our clients who are mostly in traditional finance and market products and services, right? Uh, but there was definitely a, a lack of understanding of, of digital assets and what was happening in the space. And so when we thought about the launch of the NFT itself, we did consider having that that walled garden platform where maybe we just, you know, give us your email and we'll, we'll host the NFT on our site and it make it really easy. But part of it was by design to have you go and Download an Ethereum-based wallet. I wrote a step-by-step -step guide for really get hands-on. So 
create some friction, but not a lot so that you would learn and then enjoy being, you know, a part of it and, 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 you know, go through that process. So definitely agree. And because you're focused on largely the educational aspect of this and you do such a great job breaking this down. Um, I watched your video uh, a few days ago on DAOs, which I thought was great. And we can link to that in the, in the, in the show notes here, but because this is one of your focuses, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. And especially for the newer users, how would you break down what NFTs are? It's such a buzzword these days that everybody's hearing about, whether it's people who haven't got into the space yet or in traditional finance, you know, what are NFTs and uh, what are their use cases? Yeah, so, so not starting off too complex. Um, the way I like to answer that is just think of them as digital versions of things that we buy, sell, trade, consume, create in real life. So think collectibles, art, games, real estate, tickets, memberships, et cetera, right? I mean, it, we're truly at the really early innings of this. If you were to simplify even more, uh, I, I'd say just think digital property rights, digital ownership, and then really simplistic, maybe the next iteration of social media, right? So I think all of those definitions work, all are fine. If you really want to go complex and be like, well, what is it? Honestly, it's just a non-fungible version of any other token out there, and it's delineated by a token ID underlying in the contract. So that's what makes it unique and, and scarce and rare. It doesn't make it valuable per se. I mean, that depends on the use case, et cetera, but um, that is what an NFT is, non-fungible token. And that's where with the art use case, I think it's been so important to drive adoption of NFT technology at the same time has probably introduced a degree of confusion uh, to people outside of it. So I have this Board Ape Yacht Club shirt on, and I think most people have probably seen the, the Board Apes at this point, but NFTs are so much broader than that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, look, there, there's, uh, there's a, a plethora of categories anywhere from, you know, play to earn to land to, to gaming, art, collectibles, et cetera, you name it. And you have uh, behind you a framed NFT of mm -hmm. your own, correct? And, yeah. uh, and also yeah. your, your ENS name, which is the Ethereum naming service, uh, which for those unfamiliar, uh, one of the things that makes crypto a little bit complicated is these wallet addresses, which are quite long and complicated. And ENS is one of those services that's allowing you to have more of a username. Think of it sort of like a public email address uh, where you can send and receive money from. So that's that's pretty exactly. interesting. And wh where'd you get that frame from again? So this one's from a company called Token Frame, and it allows you to cast your NFTs to, to the frame itself. So you do have to own it. It has to be within a wallet that you have I can't, you know, broadcast Sports Center on there. Uh, it's just for for NFTs. Uh, and then, you know, another one, another provider I like is Metasil, which I have one of those coming. It just it just depends. There's different use cases for them. The Metasils have a stand, um, so just kind of gives you a different look. And for listeners who aren't also watching the video, behind Matt is a mm -hmm. is a frame uh, of an NFT that he owns that basically looks like an aquarium, right? A, a very colorful aquarium, fish swimming around. Yeah, this is from an artist called Young and Sick. It's actually a background scene from the PFP project Fluff World. So it's literally just a background, but it's animated. It looks really interesting. Um, they, they dropped these last year at South by Southwest in Austin. Uh, and so, you know, limited number makes them scarce, but honestly, I just like the art. It looks like, it does look like an aquarium to me. That's why I keep it up. And that, that's an, that's a point too, that people should take to heart, uh, when you buy into these NFT projects, there's been a lot of hype around a lot of the art. Um, don't think about them as get rich quick schemes. If you do buy NFT art, buy the art because you like the art and you want to own it. And that that's really the best reason to do it. We can't tell you too much on, on this podcast about trying to use that as a, as an investment vehicle, uh, but buy the art because you like it. And we're going to tie Matt, the NFTs into the metaverse. You're the person, perfect person to talk mm -hmm. to about the metaverse. You were very early with uh, Decentraland, but why don't you just go ahead and, and share some of your thoughts on that? Where are we today? Where are we going? Is it yeah. is this a real thing? Is it going to stick around? Yep. 
Uh, and I think how they tie to NFTs is is a good um, takeaway as well. So so hopefully some of your listeners are familiar with Matthew Ball. He he's certainly an expert uh, on the metaverse in the space, and he has previously described it by four features. Uh, the first one would be large scale, so it could support a massive amount of participants, right? Second would be interoperable or interoperability. So you could take one asset in one ecosystem and, and play it in another. So think of your your skin, your gun, your avatar in Fortnite, and all of a sudden you could play it in Battlefield or Grand Theft Auto or some other game. It's persistent, meaning it's always on whether you turn the game off or not. And then lastly, interface, right? So it could be browser-based. It could be a headset that you wear. And last week we, we were discussing how you were wearing, I think, a, a version of the Oculus, right? But the key here is that's really just how you interact with it. It doesn't really define what, what the metaverse is. So the, what I've described, I think, are really more features. So when I'm asked what the metaverse is, I, I tend to define it as a place in which you own digital assets and you can have true digital property rights, where you own a piece of it and the blockchain is what enables you know, this sort of ownership. And so when I, you know, I brought up NFTs at the beginning, I think it's really important, especially for the open metaverse, but where do NFTs fit into the equation? And I think if you consider the idea of land in the metaverse, right? Picture any land you want to you imagine, and there's some sort of avatar running around, and that avatar or character is wearing a watch and a jetpack. For the most part, all of those items are likely NFTs. And they're really just the very building blocks of the metaverse. And honestly, for this place, whether it's the land or the game assets, I think it all has meaning to you because you could finally own them instead of just playing in some other game designer's world, right? And that's what we've been doing for so long. So I'm not 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 uh, criticizing you for playing in, in meta, but but that would be my the difference. Well, and that's where technologically as well, as often happens with technological innovations, generationally, there are going to be some differences here because the generation that let's call them Fortnite native, and you can buy different skins. And if you're not at all familiar with the gaming world, that basically just means different outfits, what your character looks like. And you go to someone in that generation, and it's just a lot easier sometimes to explain NFTs because you say, you know that skin that you bought in Fortnite or another game? Yep. You know that you don't actually own that, right? You're basically leasing that from the game. Okay. What if you could own that and take that to any game that you play? That's kind of what more we're talking about in terms of actual digital asset ownership and interoperability between different applications. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be games, by the way. Ga- gaming just, I think, pushes us forward a lot, you know, with with the Unreal Engine and some of the others. We see these amazing games being built. But, um, you know, we get to a point as well where you're doing design collaboratively, right? Like, yeah. you say, say you're Pepsi, for instance, and you're designing a new two-liter bottle, and you have someone in Hong Kong, someone in New York, and someone in London. Once we get the haptics, right, which means the, the, the feel, you know, you can feel the weight of this thing, you can feel the touch of it. Um, maybe you don't need everybody to fly to a central location to um, go over this, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think that's, I think that generation is going to pick up on NFTs, whether we always call them NFTs either, do you think that's helpful? Do you think this terminology evolves over time to something, I don't know, that has less maybe baggage with it now? We call them, uh, this isn't a great marketing term, but like unique digital assets or something just more plural language. Honestly, I've heard arguments for both sides. I think we're just still too early to to redefine it again. it's going to be called different things depending on the ecosystem you're in, right? I mean, maybe they're going to want to want to have their own language, right? So, I've, I, 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 we just wrote a piece on Arcade to Earn, and they described mission pool operators and mission pool uh, owners, right? So, it, I mean, there's all these different, all these, all this different verbiage. We just have to kind of see, have to see how it plays out. So, I think you mentioned a minute or two ago, open metaverse, mm-hmm. and. This is a large debate uh, in the community right now. So you have the open metaverse concepts where you're talking about the scale, the interoperability, taking digital assets between them. Then we have things that are also calling themselves metaverse, which 
It's really up to each individual to define for themselves what they mean by metaverse to an extent. Uh, but we have the Facebooks, for instance, and you know, you see criticisms about it nowadays, like who wants these cartoon-like characters and this and that. I personally am very impressed with what Facebook has built. I think it's amazing. They clearly have world-class developers. I told you that game on Oculus that I play, Population yeah. One, they've they've acquired that company, Big Box Games. They obviously have some of the best developers doing this stuff. But when you're in the world that we are, the Crypto Web 3 world, most of us wouldn't consider what Facebook is building metaverse because it's still built on that web two business model of algorithmic, extractive, walled garden. The company owns the assets. Um, do you think that there's a future where both of those things exist and they both can be useful for certain purposes? Or do you see it as a competition to see which version of that wins out? Uh, okay, so I, I guess maybe backing up, I would describe the open metaverse as a virtual world where anyone can access and build upon it, while the closed is only accessible to those given permission. So you've been given permission by Meta to play that game. You, you are sacrificing something for that high quality interaction right now, right? Um, th there's pros, I think, to open, which are more inclusive, more diverse. The downside, and I think this is probably obvious, it, it's gonna be less secure in some cases. And you know, if it's not centralized, it does become harder to regulate content and behavior. I mean, that's a super valid concern, although I would argue that Facebook probably tries really hard to regulate content still. But ultimately it comes down to interoperability, right? That's the key to the open metaverse being more successful than closed, but also to connecting to the closed at some point in time. So, you know, going back to what you mentioned, it is a choice and, and, and that is what Web3 is. Web3 gives us a choice between decentralization and centralization, right? It's, it's uh, and, and by the way, for both businesses and users, right? It's, it's a peer-to-peer -peer network, distributed network model instead of the client server, but you may want the client server model in some cases, right? I mean, I, I could argue that Vanek.com should probably be always be Web2. Why, why have it be distributed? But then again, you know, if you have denial of service attacks constantly, maybe you, you want it to be distributed. Who knows? So I think there's pros and cons to both. I, you know, for, for an NFT enthusiast, for an investor, I just like the concept of ownership more than I do the concept of leasing. And I think that's what, what where I kind of stand on it. Yeah, that makes sense. And, I, you know, I think that, a common criticism of crypto web three world is you have a solution in search of a problem. You've heard that I've heard that. And mm -hmm. there, there's sometimes validity to that, especially in the early days. Uh, and that's just natural. That's, that's kind of how technology works, how these adoption cycles work. Um, do you think pretty soon we're going to start seeing more what people consider outside of the art and whatnot, more practical use cases of NFTs? I, one example before you answer that, that comes to mind is just the, the Ticketmaster news recently where they're going to operate NFTs on the Flow blockchain, which is a Dapper Labs project. And uh, maybe they can cut down on some of the scalping and manipulation that goes on in, in ticket sales. I mean, that's a pretty practical application if that played out rather than, I don't mean to minimize it, but rather than just an entertainment aspect, there's actually a business use case there, right? So let me let me maybe talk to a few and and there's one that would be a competitor to Ticketmaster, which is Yellowheart. And when it comes to use cases, I, I see sort of three just for that one. So Yellowheart will will you know you can go on the platform and buy event tickets. The ticket itself is an NFT. It's a non-fungible token. And why is that important? Well, I, I don't know the last time you went to a concert or, or a show. I don't care if I bought it off of Ticketmaster. There's just always that thought right when you get to the gate, like, oh, is my ticket real? Have, ha, has somebody broken into my email and already scanned it? Who, who knows what goes through your mind? But when you know that the ticket in your wallet is truly a one-of-one, -one, it alleviates that concern. Second, when you think about secondary market transactions, you know, if you're a performer, you know, I don't know, use Elton John. Elton John has a concert. He sells his initial wave of tickets. 
And then those tickets change hands on the streets, right, through scalpers. He doesn't make another dime of royalties on those ticket sales, right? And so thinking about benefiting the artists is a big deal too. And then sort of combining it in many ways from what I've seen from their platform, and maybe Ticketmaster will do the same, the ticket itself is art. And, and in the case of Yellowheart, and by the way, I'm not an investor in Yellowheart or anything, but in the case of Yellowheart, the, the initial ticket is in black and white. And when you scan it, it turns to color. So it sort of like comes to life. So what does it do? Well, it, it proves your attendance at the event. It sort of proves your fandom. It also allows you to have artwork, which can sell in the secondary markets as an NFT. That artwork would show up on OpenSea or looks rare. And then lastly, it allows the artists to sort of reward the fans, right? So, hey, anyone who is in section L, general admission, I'm going to drop you something that you could burn for merch, or I'm going to offer backstage passes. And, and then sooner or later, the artist has dropped enough special items that that, that that NFT begins to have value all of a sudden. Like, it may not be worth $10,000, but if you're a real fan, and you might be like, well, hey, Matt, I'd give you 50 bucks to go see Maroon 5 backstage. Yeah, you know, right? So I, I think that's a that's an easy one. Um, but, but there are more, right? I, I mean, if, if you want to go past music, um, I, I think the Silo is a – Silo and Seeker. Silo is an infrastructure play for payments and communications. Many of your listeners, myself, I use Venmo for payments all the time. Um, so Silo is a combination of Venmo and WhatsApp, but decentralized. So I could send payments, you know, encrypted uh, through through a really a P2P-like network. Uh, my communications, whether it's text, video calls, phone calls, there's, there's no central authority. Nobody could shut me out, right? So I think there are some really good use cases that we could certainly um, relate to. The most recent one that I wrote about was tied to Club Deven which is uh, a wine company based on the blockchain. So they sell wine-based NFT memberships. They have a digital twin or a digital cork, as they call it, that sort of tracks the full chain of custody on investment-grade bottles. So from the vineyard to the truck, all the way to the table. And then when you uncork that bottle, if you uncork the digital cork on the wallet, it updates on the blockchain and also allows you to mint up to 12 tasting tokens that your friends and family or whoever's at the table with you can collect in their wallets. So I just think, we're, again, we're at the very beginning of, of really good applications and um, well beyond wine and music, right? But yeah. so again, just even, even communications payments. I think those are great examples. The only thing I don't like is the, the tasting tokens being 12, maybe two or three, not sharing a bottle of wine with 12 people. Personally, well, I think in this case they it's also part of um, which is really key is is onboarding users to web three yep. and and this is their way of saying, you know what this is a real person connecting more real people to web three versus a bot flipping a, an nft right like so so that's why I think they do it, and it also it certainly benefits the the vineyards themselves as they get more exposure to uh, to a, a wider audience. Yeah, that that's I, I love the wine example because mm -hmm. I think people need to start thinking. I mean, the the use cases of NFTs. It's kind of like in the early internet when you say, well, "What are the use cases for this going to be?" And you can give a great explanation at that time, or you can give a great explanation at this time. The reality is, there are so many use cases that we can't possibly think of right now and nobody's going to hit on and you enable you know there's that great quote where they say as for the future you just want to enable it rather than force it you want to keep those doors open and if you if you put people in a position to innovate on this they're going to come up with so many use cases that we haven't even thought about but i love the wine example because it connects the physical and the digital world and that's important for people to understand that nfts can be used as unique digital identifiers for physical goods as well. It's not just uh, digital assets. They can kind of cross those worlds. And um, the the ticket example with Elton John, really interesting. I've, I've seen people talk about some of the, the, the innovations that could go on with ticketing. And you hit on this, but say, Matt, you and I both attended the Elton John concert and, and 
a certain percentage of the people in attendance afterwards got some cool gif or, or video yeah. of him performing rocket man at that concert and then you know i got it and you didn't just it worked out kind of in that lottery like system but it was such an important event for you life event and you're like oh i'd really love to to buy that ticket from you with that connected to the nft and we could exchange that just opens up so many possibilities that that are really really cool um sure now you've done some interesting things at van eck uh when it comes to nft projects if you want to talk a little bit about that yeah i mean so so we launched our community nft uh, like i said earlier uh call it 50,000 people in the community right now. Um, it's mostly built currently around driving folks to various events that, that we've been hosting. So the first one that we had was in Austin at Consensus. We had U.S. Senator Cynthia Lummis there, and, and she spoke with Jan Van Eck, our CEO, about Bitcoin regulation and what could be done there. Um, but when you think about that event, 100, 120 people, from all over the world, real melting pot of in diverse group. Um, it, it was it was a really special event that I think makes the the NFT sort of valuable in a way, although we we don't allow it to trade and and sell. Um, and then we have another one coming up on September 13th next week at the New York Stock Exchange, where we're bringing in another NFT project to co-host it with us and. Again, we're going to bring in community members. Some of the members will join me on the podium on the closing bell on Tuesday and, and get that experience. So it's it's meant to be sort of fun and unique. And yeah, I would argue build some brand loyalty um, used to source uh, potential clients, but honestly, just allow folks to network and, and get to know others in the industry, right? There's going to be a lot of uh, industry pros at these events. And, and again, it's just, it's all around education. I think we're doing a good job with it so far. And, and for those listeners who maybe don't get to attend a lot of uh, these crypto events yet or the conferences, I would like to point out that uh, Senator Cynthia Lummis from Wyoming, um, she's at a lot of these conferences. There are a certain number of politicians, and we're seeing it pick up, who are open-minded to this, are educating themselves on it. And it's not at this point a partisan issue. So she's from one side of the political spectrum. Um, also with her in attendance, sometimes I've seen her speak multiple times now, is Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. So there's a Republican and a Democrat cross aisle, uh, really educating themselves and trying to get up to speed on this. So uh, I think there's a, sometimes a misconception that I just want to point out that, that people think that the crypto and Web3 space is anti-politics, anti-regulation. I, I think I think there's a lot of working together with the politicians just to make sure it's good good regulation, good laws being passed. And I think uh, yeah. Lummis and Gillibrand are both doing uh, nice work there. And, and maybe just to tack on to that, <clears throat> I'd argue that, you know, following the Great Depression, 100 years ago, we had the Securities Acts, which was a form of regulation. And I, I would argue that that protected consumers and, and investors, right? More, more so than it did hurt them. And, and you know, there, there are examples and, and some of us have been a part of these where whether it's scams or ripoffs or whatever it is, rugs, whatever you wanna call them, um, the space could use some, some protections for investors. So I, I think VanX supports that view and, and we just wanna play our role in, in and, and supporting that so yep and, and some some prior uh regulation for listeners resulted in what what is called the howey test to determine whether something's a security we won't go deep in the weeds of that now but we'll do another video on that and uh it's it, it's it's a point of contention uh sometimes in the crypto industry trying to figure out what is a security and what is not and the the what that can result in is a different enforcement body overseeing what uh, it is so maybe Bitcoin and uh, would be under the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and others would be under the Securities and Exchange Commission. So it's going to be interesting to see um, how that that pans out. So you mentioned a lot about community, Matt, and using NFTs to uh, to further that purpose. I know you're a fan of POAPs, which are proof of attendance and participation. Why don't you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so so POAPs are part of our engagement strategy. Um, 
I, early in, I want to say April, I was listening to an NFT project called Brandverse, and they would have AMAs or Ask Me Anythings, and you could learn more about the project. And every time you attended, they would allow you to collect a POAP. So yeah, proof of evidence, protocol, think of it as the memory on the blockchain, proof that you were there at that date and time. In fact, we're going to have one next week at the event for folks to claim. And it's on the XDAI network. It's not meant to be bought or sold. It's meant to stay in your wallet and not be transferred. But uh, when I go back to that project, they at some point, they said, listen, if you have four or more of these POAPs, we're going to allow you to mint an NFT for free. And I thought that was a really cool idea at the time that NFT was worth one ETH. So, I mean, that, that was a, a really nice call it reward for being an engaged community member. Um, but I also think that in general, the POAPs, depending on how you design them, um, they could tie right to your brand. Last week, we did one with our Web3T episode on YouTube Live, and we used the, 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 one of the memes, the popular memes for crypto. Uh, and I think users find them to be sort of fun and, and folks will collect them. Ultimately, we will look to reward those who collect our POAPs down the road as well, right? I, I don't, I'm not going to say what exactly that is today, but that, that will be a thing down the road. And so Matt has a great newsletter called Blubber Notes, which we'll, which we'll mm -hmm. talk more, more about um, a little bit later as well. But in, in a recent newsletter, you shared what I found to be really interesting about these NFTs. And we were just talking about some of the royalty use cases and whatnot. Now, there's actually a little bit of confusion there, isn't there? Yeah. So recently, I, I want to say three, maybe four weeks ago, Pseudoswap, um unveiled their marketplace with very low transaction fees, like half a percentage point, and they are not honoring creator fees or royalties. And that's a really big deal for the space, right? Because part of the reasons for why artists have gone the NFT route or Web3 route is to collect those royalties, have more of a global audience. And the idea that their art or whatever that, that asset is can trade without having a royalty associated to it is concerning. Uh, I, I think what was brought to light that not everyone knew was that the royalties were not enforceable on chain. And the reason for that is currently, um, it, you know, if, if you don't want to present, you don't want to prevent someone from trans from being able to transfer the asset, whether it's just from one wallet I own to another, why would I want to pay a royalty every time I trade from, let's say my hot wallets and my cold wallet? right? That we wouldn't want to generate a fee from that. So that's why it's, it's a little bit of a controversy. I think um, it's still up in the air right now in terms of a solution. There are a few protocols being uh, thrown out there that, that might solve it, but I just don't know if the support is there for that. Uh, there is also the idea of tipping, right? I mean, you know, in the U.S., tipping's not legally required, but people do it. So would people tip I don't know, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know if that would work either. So I think it, it remains to be seen on what the solution is. Ultimately, it's, I think it's going to come up to the community um, and, and the owners of the community to, to sort of incentivize the community to, to, to maybe do so, right? Or is the community getting enough value out of paying those royalties? If you, you know, A good example would be if you have a project and those royalties were, go towards parties, well, don't you want to go to, to the parties? Yeah, we, we do. Well, if there's no royalty fees, guys, there's no parties, right? I mean, that's one way to think about it. And and obviously, creators do deserve to be paid and, and, and you know for what they've done. So yeah. more to come. I, I think there's some good uh, some good ideas out there. We'll see what happens. And even even what we're seeing with pseudo's low transaction fees and transaction fees in web three world, which some web three companies are kind of bridges between web two and web three. But one of the promises of web three, and I think maybe we'll get back to the differences between web one, web two and web three in a little bit, but just because you hit on this, those low fees are really important aspect of web three. We talk about take rates and take rates basically just mean how much a company takes from creators when they create something. So if you look at um, YouTube, popular YouTubers, or you look at Facebook, uh, Facebook content that people are creating, that's getting millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of views. And what are the creators getting out of that in web two world? I mean, these take rates are 
ridiculously high, uh, sometimes 70%, sometimes 100%. If you have a company with a 100% take rate, just flip that to 0%. That's what it means. 100% take rate means that the creator is getting 0% uh, for, for what they uh, did with that. So interesting to see kind of a race to the bottom on fees, even if it is causing uh, some sort of controversy. But let's get back to the web one, web two, web three in a minute. Matt, I was wondering, you chose for your uh, NFT project at VanEck, you chose Ethereum. Obviously, there's a lot of news about the merge and, and all of this. But what, in your view, is the promise of Ethereum and why did you choose it? Yeah, I think for us, um, look, Solana was on the table for lower transaction fees. Polygon was there. Um, ultimately, we went with Ethereum because most users are ha, have either downloaded or used MetaMask, Trust Wallet, or even Rainbow.me, and all three support Ethereum. And so, you know, again, as a Web3 user, is, you know, that those are the wallets I like. So if I'm going to bring someone from traditional finance on board, what do I think, again, sort of eases that friction a little bit? I mean, open up rainbow.me on your app today, whoever's listening, and see how quickly you make a wallet. It's literally a one-touch wallet creation experience, right? So that's what we wanted to provide. Um, now, to be fair, gas fees, transaction fees were quite high. Um, we did not want to have our, our, again, traditional finance folks connecting to a platform, um, paying a paying gas. So honestly, we, we minted it for them and we've airdropped it to them. So we ate the gas fees to make sure that they had a safe and secure experience. Because ultimately, you know, we, we are a regulated U.S. financial services firm. It's, you mentioned the Howey test earlier. We don't want to accidentally issue a security, which is why we don't allow folks to, to sell or list. We also don't want to take on risk associated with, did they click on a bad link? Did they, you know, have, have they gotten scammed? Did they lose their private key? You're right. So we're avoiding a lot of those issues by going that route. But ultimately, you know, if, if you were to, if I was to create a project today for profit, I'd have a hard time going anywhere else. I mean, maybe Solana or Polygon, but Ethereum is where most of the traffic is, right? So that's where I would want to be. Um, but so hopefully that answers it. Yeah, it does. And just for, again, people who are maybe a little bit newer, you mentioned an airdrop. Will you just touch on that mm -hmm. for a second? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so in, typically when you mint an NFT, Today, actually, unfortunately, I tried to mint this NFT called the Brick today, and I wasn't on the allow list. But typically, you would connect your wallet, pay a transaction fee, sign a message, right? And, and it would show up in your wallet. In this case, we simply collected their Ethereum wallet addresses, and we transferred the asset to them right directly to their wallet. So that way, we called that the airdrop. They didn't have to do anything except give us their address. And... When Matt says that they gathered their addresses, important thing to point out here in crypto, you have a public address and private address. Uh, public, you're more so thinking about that as you would an email address. There's no harm in having it publicly shared. Your yeah. private keys are what you really need to keep secure. So just by having someone's public address, you were able to airdrop them that at no expense to them which is really important. And then you've built this community with this VanEck NFT project. How do you communicate with everyone? You know, are you using Telegram? Are you using Discord? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, that has been a major challenge for us because, um, and, and I think this is worth talking about for sure. So Twitter, we have, we have uh, Van, at VanEck NFT. Not everyone is on Twitter, right? I mean, a lot of our community members are not on Twitter. We've had suggestions for um, communication tools like Telegram and Discord. I struggle with those because I cannot tell you how many times people get scammed on Discord, clicking the wrong link. They're, they're, they think they're talking to Matt Bartlett. It's not Matt Bartlett, and they and they they lose their their wallet. Right. So we have Twitter. Uh, we do send emails. What I would call a community newsletter. Here's the rules that I have to play by. Though I can only email because I'm in the U.S people in the US. And so, you know, th there's a large percentage of our community that's like, hey, what's going on? Well, we, we did a couple things. We included a QR code on the NFT itself so that if they take a picture of it, 
it could take them right to our NFT community page and they can get the most recent updates. But that's also very one-sided. So what we've built and are rolling out next month is Portals. It is, it is um, a project on the Solana blockchain. It allows you to build a sort of metaverse room experience. You could hang artwork, you could have arcade games in there, and you have fun little avatars. It's non-threatening, though, in that you could dance, jump, sit. You can't attack people. But it has voice chat, text chat, even screen sharing. So the way that we're thinking of this is instead of doing a Twitter spaces or an AMA, come in. I could do I could do sort of like an admin mode or just open voice chat, and we could just have a discussion with our little avatars, would make it a little more forward-looking and innovative, like you know Van X mindset or mantra, and and communicate that way. So basically, if you're a member of the NFT project or a reader of Blubber Notes, you can come in and socialize and, and meet with other like-minded. Crypto curious, you know, individuals. Are you, are you, is Van Eck going to have any any sort of office in portals or something like that? Yeah, so we're working on that. I, I've been working with that team, um, FTX, Coinbase, and a few others started an initial, I, I guess, sort of district DAO, and we we want we do want to be a part of that. But they may also have a traditional finance district as well. I would argue Van Eck should be in both. So for right now, we're just trying to get those terms of use set up, have people jump in and, and, and play around. And then for sure, though, I, we, we will definitely have a space. And that's something that I think is really important. Fidelity has something like it right now in Decentraland. I don't want to render judgment on it. I will just say that the portal experience has been really clean, um, just really strong. And that's what I, you know, if we're going to put have a, a presence in the metaverse, I want us to have the most polished presence we can have. And I think that's it as of right now. Yeah, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, JP Morgan as well, maybe in the sandbox mm -hmm. was opening opening one as well. So you, you do see some uh, some interest and in, in innovation. And of course, JP Morgan actually has made some pretty substantial investments in the Web3 uh, space themselves. But you know, a decent amount of Atria users are in traditional finance and you have a unique perspective being at a regulated financial firm. Yeah. What, what was that journey like? I mean, I think some people might think this is all interesting, but are the hurdles that you have to jump through or making sure that you're staying within the boundaries that you legally need to as a regulated financial firm? Um, have, have those hurdles been very high or what was your experience been like? As, the, as a firm or as an individual? I guess as a firm first, but I'd also be interested in your individual. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, if you asked our chief of compliance, he, he's had a, a very stressful uh, period of time because, you know, the crypto team, we're, we're constantly trying to push forward with innovations and we are in completely uncharted territory, right? And so, he, you know, he wants to make the best decision possible for the firm while protecting investors, brand, etc. And here we are trying to like test out new dabs and hey, can we give clients access to this? I think what's also helping to guide us in a way is that we are we are sort of held back a little bit. Number one by by regulation in some cases, but also by the adoption of the firms that we partner with. So I, I think where we've seen adoption really has been I don't I'm not going to call it the smart money that gets thrown around a lot, but when you think about institutional, specifically family office um, clients have, have a lot of interest there. And that once that adoption becomes mainstream, I think we're going to see that trickle down more into traditional finance firms, traditional broker dealers. And that'll, that'll sort of uh, get up and running a lot quicker. I, I don't want to name the firm, but there, there's one in particular who we work with, which I, I would say two to three years ago, don't even want to discuss it to where we had a conversation recently around what is Van Eck doing around NFTs? Are you building portfolios? That type of conversation to now, they have someone like me pushing out what is Web3 content? You know, what are NFTs, right? And so we're getting there, it's just taking time. Yeah, and you're putting out a lot of that content. Do you think that is the biggest bottleneck to 
mainstream, let's call it mainstream adoption in traditional finance. Do you think the, the biggest bottleneck is education or do you think it's clarity on regulation? Where, where, where do we stand? Uh, gosh, I, I think, I think going back to some of what we discussed around use cases, um, Look, again, you know, we had, I think I mentioned this and I may have touched on it or hinted at it earlier. We launched a digital asset ETF last year and it was approved at one of our partner firms. We went out and had heavy sales activity with, with these financial advisors. We did not have a great raise. It's a great product. It, it, we like it. Everything's fine. But 90% of the conversation was around education. What is a crypto miner, right? Like, what is Coinbase? Why would I want to own that? And so I think that was a turning point, at least for me, content-wise, because that's where I started. And I tried to give these use cases where the advisor who's, you know, very professional or maybe all business has something that they could relate to. If I start off with a fluff world avatar or, you know, some other PDE game specific it's just tough to, to get clients to wrap their heads around it. And that's why, again, we bring up the, the Yellow Heart Ticketmaster, the, the, the Silo app, et cetera, right? Um, I, think they, I think advisors need to hear more of that. And then what is the investment opportunity? How do I access that? Right now, a lot of it's been done through private equity, right? So through venture capital, early, early series uh, fundraising. So... You know, again, to where the average retail investor can get in early, you either gonna, you're either going to have to wait or you buy the NFT directly and you play your role there, right? Or you buy the, the, the whatever respective cryptocurrency now, right? So the, that's kind of how I see it as of today. I apologize if this seems too basic. And I mentioned it in the introduction that Van Eck, focuses on ETFs, mutual funds. What is a digital asset ETF for listeners who are not familiar with what that means at all? Oh, well, so so think of an exchange traded fund, a basket of, of maybe fixed income or of equities or of both, but that has a theme where the index is composed of companies that make up that, that digital asset indice, right? So Coinbase would be really a digital asset services provider, right? They are an exchange for crypto, right? So that would be an example. Got it. Okay. Um, now let's get back to Web3 and what the promises of Web3. And I think those of us who are enthusiastic about Web3 believe that we are in, let's call it the third evolutionary step of the internet. And we break it into three main buckets, Web1, Web2, and Web3. Um, do you want to kind of break that down for listeners from your perspective? Sure. Uh, Web one, you know, we had widespread adoption taking place in the early nineties. This was the read only static instance of the internet. It lacked real function or ability for us to interact with it. And I think we lived with this until around 2004. It was not the worst, right? I mean, we had messaging, we had email, uh, I, I was playing. I was playing games back then. I was a teenager, um, and I thought maybe the only improvement at the time that we needed was speed, and we were way wrong. So here comes Web two, and that is still the centralized version, mostly of what we use today. Uh, web browsing. It's it's websites that follow that client server model in which you know you the client will request that a company server distribute information back to them. You go to Google, what's an NFT? It comes back, non-fungible token. Here's a couple examples, right? And I think, you know, the upside and what we've enjoyed for so long is that these websites are extremely easy to manage. The downside, they they control access to the application, which we addressed earlier. Uh, and, and honestly, all of that data that, that, that we put out there, whether it's personal and sometimes private information. And we, we found that out over the years. So I think, again, I brought up earlier Web3 giving us the choice. Who do you want to share your data with? And if you share your data, should you be compensated for it? Um, should, it should another entity be able to prevent you from sending money to someone else or from communicating with someone else? So, um, you know, the, the, the promise, uh, look, it's, I think it's more resistant uh, proof, you know, resistance to censorship to, to single points of failure. 
and 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 fewer fewer people can block you, fewer entities could block you from accessing. I mean that that's kind of where I would put it. And we see some of the early internet pioneers. Now Tim Berners Lee actually falls in in a different category where I think he can get behind the concepts of Web3. He doesn't necessarily think a blockchain has to be part of that. But when you look at some other early internet pioneers, Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz comes to mind, now of Andreessen Horowitz. Of course, he was behind building uh, what became the first popular web browser. And we hear these lines all the time in crypto that people who are getting involved, they say, like for someone like me, for instance, I wasn't of professional age at the time that the early internet came around. So I really was not able to participate in it in that way. And we say this maybe feels like our times version of the early internet. And then you sometimes doubt that and you say, is it, is it really? And then you see people like Mark Andreessen who built the first popular web browser saying this feels a lot like the early internet, right? And um, for someone like him, I think he said before that he calls it the internet's original sin is not having money native to the internet, right? Have you heard that? I have, and that's probably a, a missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably a missed opportunity at the time. I think some of the some of the narratives that we see as well at that time. I remember reading another interview with him where he was saying that in the '90s there was a lot of pushback on encryption at all, and uh, the narrative at that time was only criminals need encryption. And then you see right. PayPal come along. Uh, and the narrative around PayPal was only criminals need to send money online. And it gets back to that history rhymes theme where we see some of these things happen over and over again. Um, do you think we're getting close to, like at what point did people stop saying that about PayPal or about sending money on the internet in general, or do they still say it maybe? And like, do we ever get past that narrative? Is it just a point of adoption or what? Yeah, I I mean, money laundering has been taking place for some time, no matter the medium you're, you're thinking about. Um, and and I, I also believe that folks love to think of the worst, what's the worst case scenario for having this truly decentralized? We could think of a lot of horrible things that, that could take place if no one's looking, there's no central authority. And I think that's ultimately where, where that, that, that is why community is so important. And, and, and those who have the ability to moderate, um, I don't know, if you think of it, even with discord right now, right, you have, you have someone coming in and they're spreading FUD or they're, they're saying the wrong things they're trying to manipulate, they're quickly let out the door and can they own the asset? Yeah, they can continue to own it, but there are ways to, to prevent them from getting the called the full experience. Right. Um, so look, I think we're always going to think of the worst case, but the community, you know, is incentivized together. And again, even if you think of the concept of a DAO, um, the, all of the incentives are sort of aligned. And, and I think we'll, we'll get to, to a good spot over time. And you, Matt, coming from traditional finance and being a pioneer and bringing traditional finance into the crypto Web3 NFT world, where do you think there are opportunities for other asset managers, traditional financial firms and what steps do they need to take? Should they start smaller and, and work their way? Or what do, what do you recommend to people? Um, yeah, I, I think, well, if, if, you're, if you're thinking about a firm, each firm should probably have a, a, at least a few people that are really owning what's happening in the space, um, that are educating what's happening in space internally. I think that's really important. Um, I, I, I'll tell you right now, not everyone in Van Eck has an NFT. Not everyone has a wallet, right? I've spent a lot of time uh, just smaller groups, different departments, helping to onboard folks into the space. Now, whether they buy into it or not, I don't really care. I just want them to understand what's happening, understand the opportunity, understand the risks. I think that's really important. So if you haven't done that, that's probably where I would start or hire an outside consultant company to come in and help guide you. If, if you really don't know where to start, that's probably a good idea. And do you think where traditional finance is concerned as well, let's go back to the web one, web two, web three models. 
Web2, for all intents and purposes, is the internet. Now, there are ways that you can get around some of these models. If you don't like the data that Google's collecting on you, you can use DuckDuckGo. You can use an encrypted messaging application. But for all intents and purposes, the Web2 model is the internet as we know it today. Do you see Web3 in that same sense becoming the internet or do you think it'll remain an alternative choice? You know, I got to pull out my crystal ball on that one. I, I don't, I think, I think the next few years will be really important to see what happens. You know, we might start to see omni-chains where everything's bridged together and, and then you have this sort of super internet of decentralized protocols um, if that doesn't, if the winter continues for a lot longer, you're going to see those builders go away potentially. Um, it, it, the next few years are really important, but again, I, I, I could still make a case for having web too, right? I, I brought up the, just our own website or your own website. You can make a case for that, right? That it doesn't need to be all or nothing. Yeah. And, and one, one other thought that, that came to mind, bridging these generations of the internet Email is still king, isn't it? And that's how you're communicating with your audience. And people have been saying email killers forever. You know, Slack was supposed to be the email killer. Slack's yeah. good, but Slack is Slack. Slack's not email. Email is email. And um, I like that, you, that you're that you still maintaining your audience around email because I, I don't think people should lose sight of how important email still is. And uh, time will tell whether these other applications like Discord uh, sure. r remain where they are, but email has a proven track record that, that none of them. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, we could, we could message each other through Etherscan today. If we want to pay a, maybe a small gas fee or I don't, there's no appetite for that right now. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't mind if Hotmail looks at my, a couple of my emails or Gmail looks at my content, right? I'm, I, we're not doing anything wrong. Go for it. You know, steal my data. I, I need the free service, and we're okay for that for right now. Do you so? Uh, do you do you see yourself uh, from a personal perspective, at least for the time being, and for the next foreseeable years, splitting that? So, like, you'll still use Venmo if Venmo is the right use case to use Venmo. Uh, if you want to do something completely legitimate above board, but for whatever reason you want to be more private about it, maybe you use a decentralized payment method for that. Yeah, you know, look, I, I don't want to make it political, uh, and I'm definitely not taking the side here. But if you think back a couple months to the whole Canadian trucker incident, where um, people within Canada were sending money through their bank to to support the trucker, that that whole incident, and then the bank closing bank accounts or freezing bank accounts, I don't I don't know. You could take a view on that whether they were doing the right thing or wrong thing. But if you want to send money to somebody you think you should be able to send money to somebody, right? Like, um, I, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. That, that is true. Although that, you know, sometimes it feels like everything in life, there's a contradiction to. And even when we talk about these decentralized services, I wrote about this recently, and it does make me think Ethereum may be decentralized. And even some people would have a counter argument uh, to that mm -hmm. with the core devs and Vitalik and the outsized influence that they have. But Relative to what we've had in the past, it definitely is decentralized. Now, the services and applications that operate on top of it are not necessarily decentralized. And, you know, we say uh, you could send a stable coin uh, or hopefully not one. You could send a bunch of stable coins to someone uh, if you want to get around remittance payments or if you don't want to, you know, the example you brought up. That said, uh, those same services could freeze your wallet uh, if they're centralized stablecoin issuers as well. Yeah, I think that's yeah, important yeah. to point out to people and a point that sometimes is missed and that I think we should talk more about in the industry that centralized applications built on top of decentralized networks aren't decentralized. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think the other, the other use case too is, last time I'll bring up Silo, is that Part of their use case is to facilitate payments and comms in the metaverse. And so, you know, if you think about having a headset on and you're really immersed into something and you go up to a store or a merchant in a game and you're like, oh, I want to buy that sword. You don't want to be like, well, hold on a second. Let me let me go get my wallet. Let me get yeah. my credit card or my, you're right. No, apps, dApps like that, decentralized apps will allow you to 
keep that immersive experience going and facilitate the payments and comms. I think that's probably the primary use case, right? Venmo still makes a ton of sense. So I remember talking to a colleague about a year ago and saying, we will get to a place where a digital Rolex in the metaverse could easily be more expensive than a physical Rolex. Um, and, uh, you know, that it, it's a little bit of a hard concept to, to think about and to understand. Again, I just think generationally, like when you see people who are internet native, kind of pick, pick the technology up and take it in different directions. And that's why I'm excited for the younger generation to, you know, as they grow older and get into the workforce, I think they're going to take some of these technologies that, that, you know, quite frankly, you and I aren't even going to think about the use cases that they're going to come up with in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and I would tell your friend that that already exists. Um, the Brandverse project I mentioned earlier, you, you minted a watch NFT. The NFT could be worn by whatever avatar. So it's also built in Unreal Engine 5. You could wear it across the metaverse, across the open metaverse. And then they have a claim where you can claim a, a physical version of that in real life. So you have one in, in the metaverse and you have one that you could wear around around the house or whatever. And those are selling for in the thousands, right? Yeah. Um, maybe not whatever, you know, the most expensive Rolex is, but still kind of the same idea. And, and, and the same characteristics as well. Somebody might say, why do you buy a Rolex? I mean, one obvious thing to go to is social status, but it could be well beyond that because I like the look of it. Uh, you know, I, li I like the design. Alexis, I mean, you know, it all yeah. applies. The same yeah. things apply, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you joining the Atria podcast. It's been an excellent conversation. Um, thank you for taking the time. I want to tell everyone that they can go to, is it just blubbernotes.com is the URL for your Substack? Yeah, blubbernotes.com. So that's more of an NFT alpha newsletter. Okay. And then your Twitter handle is what? Uh, Matt Bartlett VE as in Van Eck. So at Matt Bartlett VE. Okay. Sounds good. And we will link to both of those in the show description. So thanks again, Matt. Awesome. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. It was fun.